This is The Whipple Effect, and my name is David Whipple. I'm a full-stack creator living the semi-nomadic lifestyle. That means I'm a digital creator and a freelancer traveling almost full-time in a vintage borough trailer with my partner in shine, Tracy. Visit my bio site at bio.site forward slash whip to see what else I'm up to, or just visit my website at davidwhipple.com. This episode features a conversation with a man named Stephen Jenkinson. If you're familiar with him, he needs no introduction, but if you're new to Stephen's work, let me tell you just a little bit about him. Stephen Jenkinson is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He is the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Tremor, Canada, and the author of four books, including Die Wise a manifesto for sanity and soul, which is the award-winning book about grief and dying and the great love of life. In 2015, he created Nights of Grief and Mystery with Canadian singer-songwriter Gregory Hoskins. With the five-piece band, they have mounted international tours and released three albums, most recently one entitled Dark Roads, and Rough Gods. I actually had the opportunity to see one of his shows in Colorado a few years ago, and I can attest it's a pretty amazing experience, so I highly recommend it. You can find more about Stephen and his work and all the other links at orphanwisdom.com. All the links will be in the description wherever you're listening to this on as well. And... A short summary of what we talk about in this episode is his band, his music, their touring experience, and in general, how life on the road is for Stephen or how it has been for him. I ask him also what is needed in these troubled times, and I share with him that I fear our freedoms are under threat. Also, another thing we talk about is a concern of mine, which I shared with him, which is a potential communist revolution. So I ask him if he's concerned about communism, if that's even on his radar, so he opens up about that. Stephen is a generous man, and I'm honored to have spoken with him. Again, this is the second time I talked with him. I also had a conversation with him on my last podcast, From Vices to Virtues. That was about three years ago, so it's nice to catch up with him. I hope this episode lands well with you. Visit OrphanWisdom.com to learn more about Stephen and his work. And if you like what you hear in this episode, I'd appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find the show on Spotify. Uh, They don't have a rating system there, but you can just subscribe to it. So anyway, enjoy this conversation. Stephen, thanks for making the time to join me on another conversation on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It's it's, uh, nice to see you again. So it occurred to me, I was wondering how I wanted to start this uh, conversation with you today. And I got an image painted in my head. I just want to share that with you. It was you and me getting into a canoe and paddling down a stream and just letting ourselves notice the beauty and the garbage and 
anything that might present itself. So that's the image I have going into this is we're just going down the stream and noticing and we'll wonder out loud about it. Okay, I just have one question about the image. Are we both facing the same direction or are we facing each other paddling? I didn't think about that. Same direction, I guess. Okay. All right, progress being what it is, let's progress. Good. Well, I'm in New Mexico right now. It's a beautiful day down here. I actually just went kayaking on the river here a couple of days ago and had uh, a really good time. I was thinking about you. And I did see a lot of beauty and not a lot of garbage, but uh, life is good in the Southwest here. I understand you're in Mexico City right now? No, actually in Oaxaca. Oaxaca, nice. I hear that you go down there sometimes. What takes you down there? Uh, I'm a pulmonary refugee. Which, which is to say, I, I come here, uh, I have to leave my winter behind in Ontario. Right. Or, or you and I would have already had our last conversation if I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been down there, but um, actually I was just listening to one of your recordings and I noticed it was recorded down there. So you also do some recording for your band there. Well, last year, about maybe 13 months ago now, we were, uh, Gregory came down and we had planned to make a new record. We'd just come off the road in November and uh, we had a 70 city tour lined up, a four continent 70 city tour. And we were, uh, we dared ourselves to see if we could come up with a new set list on basically no notice at all. And that set list uh, or the, the effort to try to craft one turned into two new records, one live, from the tour and one new material that I composed while we were down there together in January and February. And um, we did this, all this work with no recourse to any media or news or anything. So we had literally no idea what was happening uh, in the world. I'm not sure anybody did or does, let's say, but uh, at least in terms of the front page news about the plague and so on, not a clue that this is what was happening. And then, um, I, we turned something on at the end of our basically 10 days, 12 days of recording uh, to discover a couple of things. One of them was, oh, there's a plague, all right. And it doesn't respect um, uh, international boundaries or anything of the kind. And uh, it would appear almost immediately that our tour is in some kind of doubt, which segued into jeopardy, which segued into life support, <laughs> which segued into death. And uh, the, the record was born during the course of the summer, basically grieving after uh, the loss of our opportunity to go on the road again. And uh, came out, I guess, in, I, I, was it October? Something like this, I think. And um, it's a thrill to listen to it, but it does bring me back uh, to the days of uh, uh, terrific personal loss. And, uh, and a sense of kind of involuntary citizenship in, um, in the, the ranks of the walking wounded, as we all in some fashion or other seem to have become. I did see one of your shows a couple of years ago in Colorado. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. So it was really amazing to see you live with, with your band. Mm -hmm. And I listened to some of your newer recordings, the live one and the studio one, and you and your band seem to 
be really getting into the groove with your your offerings. They're really well produced. I'm really eager to hear what more you and your band are going to be producing because it doesn't appear that you're planning to stop. And from what I've heard, um, you're you thought maybe you had done it all, but you're finding now that there's so much more for you to experience and, and to share. Is that a fair assessment? I don't know about the sharing part. We do charge for it. So, <laughs> so there's that. Right. But, you know, it's, it's a remarkable encounter when you reach your limits, at least the limits that you had understood yourself to be laboring within to discover that there seems to be something on the other side of that fence. Whether you're included in it, you have to find out. That's where the work comes from. But you do, I found at least, it's really vital to dare yourself as opposed to, quote, know yourself. I mean, that's the old adage, right? Nothing wrong with it, I guess. Um, It's not exactly an encyclopedic encounter to know yourself. You know, there's, there's only so many things to know. You're kind of a limited resource at best. But one of the things that we seem to bounce around with is the idea that once you know yourself, then you know what you're capable of. But circumstances that that extenuate can have a consequence on your limits, I think. And it's not to, I'm not suggesting that ultimately we're limitless, far from the truth, but but you you find out that you just mistook where the line was, but you have to ask that of yourself or some kind of extremity might do that for you uh, or some combination of the two, which is, seems to be what the last year uh, has become for those of us who are still, I don't know, still mobilized in some fashion, you know, but going out on the road is something you have to ask of yourself because it is, uh, it sounds sexy and and uh, compelling and all the rest and there's there's two hours of every day that might um, resemble that description but the rest of the days on the road are genuinely uh, non-provocative boredom and uh, ennui and uh, restlessness and anxiety and I could go on but the idea is that you're waiting for something to happen that you yourself are responsible for the happening so in other words, you're waiting for yourself to occur. That's what it's like, right? And so you're laying in your hotel room at noon when everybody else is in their peak income generating part of their day <laughs> and you're supposed to be relaxing. And then you're supposed to hit your stride, of course, when everyone else is toning it down and leaving it to you. So you're completely arrhythmic with all, virtually all the people around you except the little cohort that you get to travel with and it better be a good deal amongst you and between you because the reliance you have one upon the other is, um, is sustaining. And if it's not sustaining, you know it very quickly and it, nothing about that could be good. And uh, so far we've had a, a wonderful um, uh, and challenging time together as we continually to remind ourselves. Uh, what an immense good fortune we enjoyed that we knew so many fellow performers and artistic types who had no gig at all 
and no, no prospect of having one. And there we were, you know, the jitters of, uh, of the, this stage about to be taken. And we would look at each other and generally it fell to me to make a bit of a, a speech. And uh, generally that's what it was. It was the invocation of a kind of radical gratitude that asked a lot of us by giving us so much. It looks like you're not too road weary. You look really well. How are you feeling these days? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, I don't check too frequently. And the mirror has never been uh, a, you know, a companion for me. So I, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it shows whatever it is. Yeah. And, uh, no, really, I mean, I said I was a pulmonary refugee off the top. But the rest yeah. of what, what brings me here is that it's a remarkably kind place. Uh, I'm not saying that that might be true for everyone, but it's true ongoingly for me. And when a place takes care of you in the form of people who are hospitable and uh, genteel and um, alert and conscious, you know, uh, you're, you're at the receiving end of a remarkable combination of things if you don't take it for granted and you don't assume that you're quote at home. So, you know, I'm lucky to have some capacity that way. And uh, if it shows, it's generally the credit goes to the place I'm at, not just the sun, I should say, but, uh, but the human uh, sun, the human warmth and, and regenerative uh, presences around me have, um, have not asked too much and given a lot. And if we get to go down the road, uh, then I suppose I'll have to convert all of that into something that's, uh, that works and that you can hear and that you'd be inspired by. But I, I suppose I would understand my relationship to this place and then to returning to some kind of life as a photosynthetic one. That is, uh, my job is to take the remarkable uh, good fortune that I have and, and with it craft something like, um, I think you used the word provocative earlier to describe the evening. And uh, I kind of stand and deliver uh, event that doesn't presume that we get a second chance to do any of this. Well articulated. Thank you. And I wanted to say by saying that I, I, think that you are looking really good and it shows for everything that is going on in your life. I've heard you say before that, you know, that's not such a compliment to say that you don't look your age or something. I'm not, I, I just want to be clear. I wasn't saying that. So you're saying I do look my age then? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll let that go. I'm, I'm, uh, if I resemble 66, it's probably because I am. I imagine you probably relate. I, the more that my life goes on, the more I age every day, year that goes by. With all the craziness going on in the world, I just feel more gratitude and humility and eagerness to just experience life as, as it happens, as it spirals. And uh, last time we talked, I had not finished reading your book on elderhood. But of course, I've sensed, since finished reading it, a deep pleasure to read, certainly burn the hardwood. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm it, very I'm proud of it. I'm sorry, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say we need it in these times. If times weren't troubled then, they seem to be now. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, of course. Um, the, if, I, if I knew what the times needed, uh, I probably wouldn't be in this kind of work. I'd be in some kind of quick kill work, I think. But I have no idea what the times need, you know? Um, That's one of the things I wanted to ask you is yeah. what, what in your perspective, like what's needed in these times? I don't, th I think it's an, it's a question that doesn't do anybody any good to wonder about. There's something about the scale of it that, that just uh, stymies and, and stupefies, right? And nobody has an obligation uh, to sound like they know what they're talking about to try to figure out what an entire era uh, uh, across all the, the continents and the cultures and so on, quote unquote, needs. And, and, and the, uh, the dead end of the question really is this. Uh, the notion that, that there's a thing called need which would be instantly recognizable to the needy people. But that's wrong. That's fundamentally not how it works. Needy people are not experts on their neediness, no? That's one of the things they need, <laughs> is clarity about their neediness. Uh, but it's not clear at all that, that uh, neediness is the same thing as getting what you want, for example. Right. Uh, and getting what you want is nowhere close to coin an old phrase, to what might be necessary. And necessary might mean sustaining rather than satisfying and, and on and on, you see. so. It's very confounding to, to back yourself into the, being in the customer satisfaction trade in a time as deeply afflicted as the time we're in. And the plague is only the most recent and the most kind of biblically emphatic uh, incarnation of what we're contending with. But we've been, we've been at the game of barely hanging on for about 50 years, conservatively speaking. And, and trying to find reasons and all the rest. That's, this is not a sustainable arrangement in any kind of time frame. And so, you know, if that's true, it seems to me to be so, then what you end up with is a sense that there's not a, a lot of time left for the current regime, right? I mean, and, and I don't celebrate that but I do acknowledge what looks like the necessity of um, our take on what we need, uh, relaxing its death grip uh, on the world at large and, um, and submitting to some other reckoning. And if, if I could answer you know, in a phrase, what do we need, that might be it, to submit to a better reckoning than we've managed on our own driven by success and and the success of being human has never been good for the world and uh we're the current incarnation of that of that catastrophe you mentioned earlier about needs and, and it, i've been tuning into the mainstream media quote news over the last year which i've never done in my life before I've always somehow managed to avoid it. I've completely just ignored 
news on TV. I would see clips here and there. I might know who the president was, you know, but I was just kind of living my life, doing my thing, not watching TV. But it seems over the last year that a lot of these politicians, corporations, scientists, experts, whatever we want to call them, they seem to know what a need is and to be projecting that or forcing that onto uh, society. And like they know what we need. And it seems like there's this forced thing, like with these vaccinations, for example, and the lockdown orders, something threatening about it. That's a a feeling I get when I tune in. Let me ask you a question. What seems threatened by everything you've just mentioned? Well, freedom is coming up for me. Like, I never really paid much attention to the Constitution of the United States, for example. It wasn't important to me. I just was kind of taking that for granted, I suppose. But now with the lockdowns and vaccinations and all these things related to COVID, it seems like uh, freedom is under attack. Okay. Uh, Let's just hang a maybe on that for a moment. Right. And then, and this is not argumentative in any way, but uh, this is the conversation part of the conversation maybe. Yes. I'd I'd offer you this as a kind of uh, response that you could consider. The presumption of what you said is everything before the advent of the plague, you were enjoying freedom basically unrestrained and to the max. Well, perhaps I should have been clear, but no, um, I knew that things were off on the governmental level. And so I, I had this sense that even though we lived in a quote free country, that I knew that I wasn't truly free. It was much more deep and complex than that. I just never really explored that, but I seem to be more over the last year. Okay, so remarkably then, one of the things you've acknowledged is your freedom to explore your freedom has been enhanced since the lockdowns and so on. I've I've been exploring a lot and learning a lot. That's one thing I'm grateful for through this whole last year. Right, right. So um, acknowledging the obvious, the lockdowns, the, the vaccinations and so on, as you've said, the invitation is what? Not that it's extended by any particular body, governmental or scientific or anything, but as one human being to another in an in a uncharted time, what invitation or mandate has been extended to us by virtue of having our, our leisure, our leisurely way about things curtailed? And you've just articulated one of them very well. So this is my way of saying, a time like this, you know, I'm not a silver lining guy, I should say, um, in the least, but I'm, I'm happy to acknowledge um, bounty or good fortune when I finally waken up to it. And I'm suggesting to you now <clears throat> that the last year has asked a lot of us the kind of requests that freedom may not make, right? Another way of saying it would be, if you likened adversity and freedom as parents, 
and you have both of them, then you know that one of them will have a different consequence in your life than the other. You prefer one almost invariably. You know, if people were honest with themselves and each other, they would acknowledge that they, like they had a favorite teacher, they had a favorite parent too. And the part that they don't want to know is, so did the parent. <laughs> but, but uh, so these, these are parents of our time, if you will, adversity and freedom of a kind. And they're asking different things of us. And uh, there's an opportunity for us to become much more three-dimensional if we willingly engage with both of them rather than just one. Um, I want to share with you that um, over the last year, uh, there's something that kind of uh, concerns me. And I just want to share that with you for what it's worth if you have something to say about it. Earlier I said I was concerned about losses of freedom and we went over that. Connected with that is like I've been hearing this thing about communism and I've read some books from the past about it, been trying to learn a little bit about history. And from connecting some dots, it seems like there's a potential of like uh, communism kind of sweeping over Canada, United States and uh, potentially the world. It's just something I've noticed on my radar. Is that anywhere on your radar? Well, first of all, it's too, from, from many of your countrymen's point of view, it's too late for us Canadians. We're already been flirting with uh, socialism for such a long time that we'd be in early uh, submission <laughs> to, the, to the red tide that you're referring to. Right. Um, no, I, first of all, I'm not sure that I, I don't have my finger in the wind of political style, let's say. Look, communism is no joke. Historically speaking, I've been um, reading the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a good amount of testimony now to how what a debacle, uh, what a serious transgression upon the world itself, communism became. You know, but and I'm no student of these matters, but I I would say only this that it behooves us not to defend ourselves against communism for God's sake, but to imagine what might it be that makes communism so compelling at a, different, at a given age or, or, or amongst a given people, you know? And if you spend more time there and less time fretting, the chances are very good that you might end up working uh, on behalf of those dilemmas that make, let's call it ill-considered communism so compelling in so many parts of the world. That's, that's the thing to wonder about, not communism, yes or no, uh, because uh, you know, what we're doing with our democracy is, is no advertisement for everybody wants this kind of life. I agree. Okay, so that's, that's an important uh, caveat, no? But the thing that makes communism compelling as a problem-solving device, the, the thing that makes tyranny compelling or fascism compelling this this is worthy of being really concerned about because I, I i'm not sure i i see it your way as far as the communism part goes but i will say from a point of view of considering fascism that i am old enough to vaguely remember people talking about what the 20s and the 30s was like 
uh, in just in North America. And there is some disturbing to me parallels in the kind of language, the kind of uh, social discourse to those times. Fascism was enormously compelling to the intelligentsia of the 20s and 30s across Europe, across the Americas, extraordinarily so, right? And before Gulag Archipelago came out, before people knew really what the, the downside of Stalin was and so on. But it was, it, it, it was enormously problem solving in those days. And the times that we're in now bear some resemblance to that. And the seeking after a particular kind of solution of the strong man variety is in the offing very possibly again. So it, it's, it's staggering and more than a little bit dismaying to see how with the, with the passing of just a few generations, whatever living memory and lessons that could be learned from the catastrophes of war, for example, pass without almost any notice or acknowledgement whatsoever two generations later. And it's like, let's roll the dice and, you know, see what we can scare up this time kind of thing. You know, let, let me, I think we're coming to the end of our time. So yeah, I think it's proper that I acknowledge a, a certain circumstance and whether it applies to you or not is for you to know. But the forced confinement and the extraordinary levels of isolation that come with it over the last year are going to have, are con will continue to have multiplying effects, I suspect. It should not surprise any of us then that the circumstance that we've been backed into by virtue of a lot of fearfulness, much of it legitimate, as the result of us, you know, gluing ourselves to the, the instrument that allows you and I to speak back and forth right now and relying upon the, uh, what used to be called the fifth column, right? The, uh, the outlying news sources, which of course are the principal news sources. So there's the first question, how outlier, how much of an outlier could they be when they've become mainstream alternative news sources? See, so there it is. So, so the notion that their credibility comes from being outsiders and they, and they can risk it all because they're not going to lose corporate sponsorship. And it's all malarkey, no? It's, this is not the case. So you have to be really alert, it seems to me, with, with knowing the consequence of how things are coming to you. How the so-called information, much of it is, does not answer that description, comes to you, right? But most importantly, the thing I'm talking about is to be aware of the kind of longing after some kind of fix that makes things look more like a Norman Rockwell painting than they've done for a while. That instinct is a dangerous one. Because if you were to ask a lot of people in your country when Norman Rockwell was painting his paintings, does that look like your life? you know the vast majority of people say, no chance at all. That's the life everybody's supposed to believe in to keep this whole sad affair going. See, that was a lot of propaganda, that stuff. And it seems to me that the longing after a post-plague time has its own propagandistic 
persuasion to it, no? Hoping to go back to normal. Yeah, any I mean, normal, I mean, how come nobody can remember all of a sudden that normal was a disaster, right? It was an ongoing, time-ticking disaster, okay? Much of it was. Your personal happiness notwithstanding, right? Okay, so in order, in order to reclaim a personal happiness now, to resort to um, feelings of people ganging up on you and all kinds of conspiracies and, you know, I, I don't know the answers whether that, that's happening or not, but I can guess this, reverse conspiracies are at least as common as conspiracies are. In other words, the conspiracy about conspiracies is as prevalent as any particular conspiracy could possibly be. And that's something that thinking people who claim to have some connection to their freedoms should be exercising their freedom to the full by recognizing the responsibilities that come with it. So that's my, that's my you know, two cents on, uh, on uh, the freedom thing is that it's not really a sense of uh, a sequence of rights it's a couple of disturbing, um, hard to get clear rights mixed in with an enormous number of responsibilities to see to it that those things serve the world that they came from. Right. And before you go, do you have any new books in the works, new projects? How did you know? Yes, yeah. I do. Uh, because this confinement is, is not the same thing as idleness for me. So. Yeah, I've, I, I did a series of live streams, I think they're called, which I call the Generation's Worth, uh, which just concluded a couple of weeks ago. And I kept track of all my preparations. Long story short, there's a book that's three quarters finished now that came from me doing that. And then I have a book about matrimony that uh, is basically finished, but I have to, I have to make it I have to give it a shape that it can persuade other people that it's finished. <laughs> yeah. And then Gregory and I are talking about making a new record within the next X number of months. That's a few things going on. Wow. A new record, uh, the live streams links will be in description, of course, so people can check those out uh, book three quarters of the way done. And so thank you for your labor of love, Stephen, and going down this stream with me and, Noticing all the things there are to notice. Yeah, man. I appreciate your invitation. You take care of yourself too and uh, be kind to that wilderness and the wilderness might just ignore you altogether. That wouldn't be a bad trade-off. Right? I agree. Thank you for that, Stephen. Okay. Be take well, care. buddy. Thank you okay. so much. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, my friend, there you go. I want to thank you for tuning in to this conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. And I want to thank Stephen personally for coming back to have a conversation with me. I really appreciate what you're doing out there, Stephen. Keep up the good work. You can visit Stephen at orphanwisdom.com to find more of his work, purchase some of his music and his books. I highly recommend that you do. And you can also visit me at my website, davidwhipple.com, or my bio site, which takes you to every other platform that I'm on, on the interwebs these days. That's bio.site forward slash Del Whip, 
D-A-W-H-I-P-P. Links are always in description. So thanks again for tuning in. I wish you well today. And remember, don't stay safe, stay free.